Hey everybody, my name is Larry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Life Church. Well, unfortunately, I got COVID. Maybe you got an email earlier this week talking about some mysterious person who got COVID. Well, that's me. And see, I got this test right here to prove it. I got the two lines instead of the one. And uh, it took me almost three years to get it, but I finally did. Fortunately, my symptoms are kind of minor, but it does mean I can't join you guys in person. I have to uh, be here in this basement of my house preaching the sermon in advance to a camera instead of joining you in person. But hopefully God speaks to me still and he's still able to impact you through uh, what I'm going to say. A few months ago, I, I re-watched the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. Uh, it still holds up one of the best movies, some of the best movies ever created. Uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Frodo Baggins, he's this innocent hobbit. He discovers that this ring he had inherited from his uncle was this legendary ancient ring of old uh, that the Dark Lord Sauron had been trying to hunt down for thousands of years. And, and so there's these faceless uh, horsemen trying to kill him and things like that. And, but thankfully he and, and some of his buddies, they bring him to safety uh, to this place called Rivendell. And at Rivendell, uh, the elf Elrond gathers uh, these this diverse set of leaders from across Middle Earth to discuss this great matter of importance, which was, what do we do with this ring? Now, uh, there, there are men there, there are elves there, there are dwarves there, and they all represent different races. And so these leaders, and the, they're, they're trying to discuss this, uh, this issue. In the beginning, there's a lot of bickering, a lot of arguing. They, they're not, they all have different opinions. Uh, but eventually, they reach this united consensus, which is that Frodo will go to Mount Doom and destroy the ring. And some of the members of that council, they pledge themselves to Frodo. And there's a scene where Aragorn goes, and you have my sword. And Legolas goes, and you have my bow. And Gimli goes, and my axe. And there's this beautiful scene where uh, the, a, a human, an elf, and a dwarf, in typical circumstances, they don't really hang out with one another. They're very diverse uh, peoples, races. They are pledging themselves to this to co in common an allegiance in common uh, uh in, to this common purpose of joining frodo in destroying the ring and they have different backgrounds they have different weapons uh, but they're united in this cause well there's a similar scene as well in acts 15 the council of elrond in many ways uh reminds me of the council of jerusalem in this council, there are also a, a diverse. There's also a diverse set of leaders representing different groups, Jews and Gentiles, uh, and they gather for another matter of great importance, which is what do we do with the fact that so many Gentiles are joining the church? And uh, uh, in the beginning, there's also a lot of disagreement, a lot of arguing and bickering, but eventually they also come out with a common. Uh, they're they're united by a common cause, and they come to a consensus. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. But before we dive in, let's talk about the context a bit. So if you've been tracking along in our sermon series through Acts, you'll know that most of what's been going on has been going on in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And that's where the Jews lived. And the reason why is because the gospel at the time was primarily going to Jews. The only people who were uh, being saved were Jews. That is, until Acts 10, in which we see Cornelius being saved. Who was the first Gentile Christian. And then in Acts 11, we see, uh, we read this interesting verse in 11:26. the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. 
Now, what's going on? So, in, in the beginning of Acts 11, uh, yeah, in the beginning of Acts 11, we read that the gospel had reached Antioch. And Antioch, at the time, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a very multicultural city, and it was predominantly Gentile, with a sizable Jewish minority population. And so, obviously, if the, the gospel was going there, the church would look very uh, Gentile. Uh, ma the majority of the church members there were Gentiles. And so what was happening was people were discovering, were realizing, oh, maybe this thing, this movement going on isn't just sort of a continuation of Judaism. Maybe it's something else that's different altogether. Because at the time, a lot of people, both inside the church and outside the church, they just thought this is sort of a natural progression of Judaism. In many ways it was, but they didn't have any way of distinguishing it from other Jewish people. They just thought it was another sect, like Phariseeism or something like that. But when so many Gentiles started to join the church, it became obvious, oh, this is something a little bit different. And so they needed a new name to come up, uh, to, to sort of label this movement. And so they called them Christians. And, and so Antioch becomes this uh, thriving church, and it also becomes a missionary sending center. Uh, in Acts 13, uh, they, they appoint Paul and Barnabas as missionaries to send them out from Antioch, and they travel around. Uh, throughout Acts 13 and 14. And then in 15, uh, we read this in verses 1 and 2. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and bon Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So about at this point, uh, the church in Antioch was probably about seven to eight years old, not brand new, but still relatively young. And, uh, and they had seen a lot of exciting things happen. A lot of people were being saved. The church was growing. They were sending missionaries out and things like that. But this was sort of the first major um, uh, issue and because people were coming up from Judea, where Jerusalem was, the sort of the, the mothership church. And they were saying, actually, you've been doing it all wrong uh, because you're not circumcised. And so if you're not circumcised, you're actually not saved. And so some people were probably caught off guard. They probably were going, oh, I didn't realize I was doing this all wrong. I need to, I need to get circumcised. And other people, they were probably resisting this. And they go, no, you have it wrong. And so there was a lot of confusion. And so they send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to try to figure out what's going on, try to sort matters out. <clears throat> and the reason why this issue was even brought up in the first place is because uh, if you're not aware, so at this time, Jews were circumcised as infant or male Jews were circumcised as infants, and then Gentiles typically were not. And this was one of the distinguishing marks of what it meant to be a Jew. And um, and so many Christians, because at the time, because they were Jews, they held on to this Jewishness of Christianity. And so they were, they believe you also had to be circumcised, not just to be a Jew, but also to be a Christian. Now we might look back today as moderners and we go, man, these guys, what a bunch of legalists. And but I, but I do think we should be careful about <clears throat> about judging these folks, about being slow to judging these folks, and sort of tr let's try to put ourselves in their shoes for a little bit, okay? Because sometimes we think we have um sometimes we have a simplistic understanding of what's going on. We think Paul and Barnabas are the good guys, and these people enforcing circumcision are the bad guys, uh, or they're like false teachers or something. But that's not really the case. I want to point something out, okay? Let's keep reading verse three to five. Um, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told, the, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. 
this is Paul and Barnabas, by the way, the news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then catch this. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So these are the same group of people. They're saying it again. These people, in order to be saved, they need to be circumcised. But catch how they're described. Some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, if you have a very simplistic view of what's going on, um, you might think, oh, Paul and Barnabas are the good guys. These people are the bad guys. This verse might sound kind of confusing to you because, and, and you might think this if, if you don't know the Bible super well, you might think, well, Paul, Paul and Barnabas are the good guys and the Pharisees, are, they're the bad guys. But this makes it clear. Some of the Pharisees were also followers of Jesus. Now, that might blow your mind. How can a Pharisee follow Jesus? I thought the Pharisees opposed Jesus. Well, evidently not. And this is not the only place, you know. In the book of John, for example, there's a guy named Nicodemus, who's also a Pharisee, who also eventually follows Jesus. And so being a Pharisee doesn't mean you're opposed to Jesus. A Pharisee is just someone uh, who's part of the social and religious movement at the time in which uh, they emphasize personal piety, ritual cleanliness, and obedience to the law. And so these are just that's what a Pharisee was. And so some of them rejected Jesus, but some of them actually followed Jesus. And so the people who were trying to enforce circumcision, they were Christians who were genuinely following Jesus, who simply believed a certain way of interpreting the Old Testament. Okay, so now try to put yourself in, in their shoes, okay? Imagine you're a Pharisee who's trying to follow Jesus. You know, you're raised to believe the Jews were the people of God, you're raised to take the raised to uh, take the scriptures seriously to not to never compromise, uh, and in the scriptures it clearly states that if anyone is not circumcised, they were to be cut off from the people of God. So that's what you believe, and so obviously you don't want these Christians to be cut off from the people of God, and you especially don't want these Gentiles to be cut off from the people of God. You you welcome these Gentiles. You want them to be a part of the church. You don't don't want them to be to be cut off. And so you believe that they must also adhere to these scriptures, which are very important, that they would also be circumcised. Okay? And, and here's what I'm trying to get you to see. This Jerusalem council was an in-house debate. Okay? It was not the case of Christians on the inside having a debate with, you know, persecutors from the outside. It was the case of two groups of Christians who simply interpreted or understood the Old Testament differently. In one group of people, they believed that the regulations of circumcision in the Old Testament still applied to Christians. In the other group, they did not. And I think the reason why it's important to make this distinction, that this is an in-house debate versus Christians versus outsiders, is because this Jerusalem Council models for us today, as modern-day Christians, what to do when we have in-house debates, when we have two varying theological camps, and we're both Christians. It's not like, you know, one of us is Christian, one of us is not a Christian. We're both Christians, but we have very different understandings of theology. You see, today, Christians, we're always having in-house debates. Um, they're always disagreeing on, we're always disagreeing on all sorts of topics. You know, oftentimes you have two opposing groups. You have people who are, uh, they adhere to dispensationalism, or you have people who adhere to covenant theology. Uh, if you don't know what that means, then 
you're probably better off. <laughs> or people who believe in uh, uh, the continuation of the spiritual gifts and, and people who don't. Or people who uh, believe women should be ordained and people who don't. And so we always have these debates between groups of people who have different theological systems, very different ways of viewing the Bible. And I think those debates are similar to what's going on in Acts chapter 15. And I think we can, regardless of which of these debates you participate in, I think we can look to the example of the Jerusalem Council to sort of gain some insight in how do we have these debates in a healthy way. Anyway, let's read what, uh, what happens, continuing in verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. <clears throat> so, here's what goes on. Okay, so, so Paul, lay, not Paul, Peter lays out the theology, we're saved by grace, not by adherence to the Old Testament law. And then Barnabas and Paul, they get the chance in the pulpit, and they explain, uh, they have all these missionary story journeys of Gentiles being saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, to back this up, that they're being saved, and God's doing amazing things, and they're not circumcised. And, and, and it says in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. <coughs> in other words, there's no refutation. Uh, a strong case is being made, and the no circumcision side is winning the debate. Okay, and then in verse 13, James stands up and he sides with Peter and Barnabas and Paul, and he gives his case. He cites some scriptures, and then he pronounces his decision in verse 19 and 20, which I'll read. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. <clears throat> now this is interesting, okay, because recall, so Peter made the case, Paul and Barnabas made this case, James made this case, they're all in agreement, the whole assembly was silent, so it seems like, you know, this side is winning, the no circumcision side is winning, but then he says, that the Gentiles should follow these four things of the Jewish law. Do you catch that? He says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles, but if you're Gentile, you need to do these four things. Now, what's that about? <clears throat> because it seems like, again, it seems like this side was winning the debate. No one else even had anything to say. So why does James tell the Gentiles to then keep Jewish customs? And also... Why these specific customs? There are four things listed here, okay? Number one, abstain from food polluted by idols. Number two, abstain from sexual immorality. Three, uh, abstain from the meat of strangled animals. And four, abstain from blood. Let's talk about these one at a time, okay? So first is food polluted by idols. So what happened oftentimes during these days was uh, before food would be sent to the market to be sold, they were often sacrificed to idols. Sacrifice doesn't mean they're eaten up, literally. They just, they're dedicated to the idols and then they're brought to the market. 
And so when, if you just, a Joe Schmo goes to the marketplace to buy meat, that meat was before, before you even walked in that store, it was, was already dedicated to an idol. And so the Jews, they obviously they abhor this practice. They don't want to defile themselves with this sort of meat. And so what they would do is some of the Jews would become butchers and then the other Jews, they would only buy meat from the Jewish butchers. And those Jewish butchers, they would uh, assure that those meat were not sacrificed to these idols. And um, it was probably a little more inconvenient to go to a Jewish butcher. It was probably more expensive, kind of like, you know, buy, buying grass-fed beef or something like that today. It's more inconvenient, more expensive, but that's what it took because they had these values, right? Um, and so essentially this rule was saying, you got to take the inconvenient route. Uh, you got to go to these Jewish butchers to ensure that the meat you were buying were not previously dedicated to idols. Okay, so that was rule number one. Number two, abstain from sexual immorality. That's pretty straightforward. Ironically, it's the, the, the least controversial of these four things, but essentially stick to God's sexual ethic. He has designed things in a certain way. The secular culture does things in a different way. Stick with God's plan for sexuality. Okay, number three, abstain from the meat of strangled animals. Now, there are a lot of rules in the Old Testament about um, how to properly kill an animal before you eat it. And uh, you're, you're supposed to slit its throat in a certain way so that the pain is minimized and so that the blood drains quickly and efficiently. Uh, and if it's not killed that way, then it's considered a strangled animal, whether it's killed by another animal, whether it's killed by a butcher. But, and the reason why is uh, when it's killed in another way, oftentimes the blood doesn't drain quickly um, because, you know, trauma is going on with the animal and things like that. And so the blood often coagulates in the animal. And that blood contaminates the meat. And there were strict rules in the Old Testament. You are not supposed to eat meat with blood in it. And that leads us to the fourth point. Okay, no eating blood. Uh, this comes up in multiple places, uh, but notably in Leviticus 17.10, it says, I, this is God talking, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood. And I will cut them off from the people. So notice that it says any or any foreigner. So does this mean that, you know, Asian people, they can't eat coagulated blood? Okay. Now, there are all sorts of theories um, about uh, why these four things are here. Um, and on, ironically, there's a lot of debate about uh, th these four things. You know, some people, they actually do believe that to this day, these four things are binding um, on all people, Jews and Gentiles. That it is wrong. They would say it is wrong, even for Asians to eat blood or something like that. Um they believe that while most of the Old Testament law is not binding to Gentiles, these four things are. But is that really the case? Are all four of these things binding to Gentiles today? Uh, well, I think people are free to disagree. Uh, but personally, I don't think so. Uh, because after all, in Acts 10, if you recall, God gave Peter a vision in which uh, he had, you know, all the animals descended from heaven. And God told Peter to kill and eat, and he declared all these foods clean. And later, in both 1 Corinthians and Romans, Paul also made a similar case that there's nothing immoral about eating foods that were previously sacrificed to idols. So then, why are these four restrictions here then? Why did James include these four restrictions? Well, I think verse 21 gives us a clue, so let's reread re what James said in 20, and then tag on 21. 20, instead we should write to them, 
telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. 21, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, again, there's a lot of disagreement. What does 20 have to do with 21? What is, why is he citing 21 as the reason for these four things in 20? Well, here's what I personally think is going on. I think James is saying there are Jewish people everywhere. I mean, Jewish people, the diaspora has spread across the world, the known world at the time. And they're everywhere. And in every single one of these places, they're gathering in their synagogues weekly, every Sabbath. They're, uh, and, and from birth, they're learning the Jewish law and they have these Jewish customs and traditions. And they're instructed in this every week. And so these people, because of that reality, they find certain practices horrendous, such as they cannot eat food polluted by idols. They cannot eat meat from strangled animals and so on. And so we need to do something to honor these people. We cannot... As Gentiles, I mean, they're not saying we as Gentiles, but you as Gentiles, you cannot be doing these things that are culturally offensive, offensive to these people because they've been raised to believe these things were offensive. And so we need to instruct Gentiles to stay away from these practices. You see, what James was doing was he was bringing the two parties together to a consensus of compromise consensus of compromise. You see, one side wanted the Gentiles to adhere to the Old Testament law, and the other side was saying, no, Gentiles, they don't need to follow the Old Testament law. So what James is saying is, okay, let's do this. Why don't you just follow the things that are the most offensive to the Jewish people, these four things, but you are freed up from following the rest of the law. Okay, so these four practices are the things that are the most culturally most difficult for the Jews to to stomach, stomach pun, pun not intended, okay? And so Gentiles need to adhere to these four things to not offend them, but they are freed up from everything else, including circumcision. Now, there's a very important principle in this, which is that just because you win a debate, it doesn't mean you get to do what you want. Just because you win a debate doesn't mean you get whatever you're entitled to. Because ball... Uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they won this debate. The Gentiles are not required to keep the Old Testament law, but they were still encouraged to deliver this message to the church in Antioch to ask them to still adhere to certain parts of the Old Testament law, even though they were not required to adhere to the Old Testament law. Why is that? Because ultimately, it wasn't about winning a debate. It was about love. The main consensus of the Jerusalem Council was not a theological position, but it was a consensus of love. Check out what Paul later writes in Romans 14, 20 to 21, which is, I think is a very applicable and relevant. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, meaning you can eat whatever you want. It's not wrong to eat, you know, even food sacrificed to idols and so on. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So you see that it's not wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols or even food with blood, but it is wrong to cause a brother or sister to stumble. And he's saying, I would rather lay down my freedoms than to offend my friend. You see, a church is a community that commits to one another. And a committing to one another requires sacrifice. You know, this is also true of marriage. In a marriage, what you have is 
two different people. They have diverse habits, diverse preferences, diverse values. They come together and they agree jointly to die to their personal desires to get what they want in order to give what the other person wants out of love for the other. And the church is the same. In the church, and especially in ethically diverse, theologically diverse church, kind of like the church in Antioch, um, you have different people with diverse sets of values and opinions and preferences. They are dying to their, to their own desires, to what they are entitled to, to what they want, in order to give to the other what they want out of love for each other. And in fact, I'll say this, the more diverse a church is, the more necessary it is for those members to die to their own desires. You know, if you ever attend a church where um, everything is exactly the way you want it to be, you love the music, you love the sermon, you love the Bible study, you love the community, you love the order of service, you love the communion, everything is exactly the way, like if you would go, if I wanted to design a church, it would be just like this. That is a sign, it's not a guarantee, but it's a sign that you have a very homogenous church. Why is that? Because in a truly diverse church, you are basically guaranteed to not like everything. Because you are not clones of one another. In a homogenous church where everybody is the same, they designed the church to fit the model. But in a diverse church where everyone has different opinions, everyone has different values, everyone has different preferences, then what happens is you can't please everybody. And so some things some people will like and other things other, thing, other people would like. But if you have love, then you won't put up a fight. Because you'll go, you know what, I, I don't really like the song that's being sung here. I don't, I'm not really feeling the lyrics here, or I'm not really feeling this genre over here, or whatever. But my brother or sister over there, he's digging the song. She's digging the song. And so because of that, I am glad that this song is being sung today. You know, today in post-pandemic America, our church is becoming very segregated. Martin Luther King Jr., he, he used to say that Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, is the most segregated hour in America. And he's talking about racial segregation, which is less so today. It still is a major issue, but it's less so today than it was uh, back then. But what I think has gone up in the church is political segregation and theological segregation. Political segregation and theological segregation. What I mean by that is people are dividing up and sorting themselves into different churches in which they are very, very theologically aligned, not even on, not just on the major issues, but on all the minor issues. And they're very lined up on their political values. Um, you know, it used to be that you just attended whatever church was around in your neighborhood. Uh, but now there are so many options. You know, do I want to go to a church with this kind of music or that kind of music? And do I want to go to a church with this kind of governance structure or that kind of governance structure? Or do I want this amount of ethnic diversity or that amount of ethnic diversity? Or do I want a, a church with gluten-free communion or not gluten-free communion? Or do I want a church where the pastor says Black Lives Matter? Or do I want to go to a church where a pastor doesn't say Black Lives Matter? Now, obviously, it's not wrong to try to choose a church, okay? You know, if you're you moved to a neighborhood, you can check out different churches. That's fine. Try to find one that... It's healthy for you and your family, one that you can serve in, one that's well-aligned. That's not wrong. Uh, but I think what I'm getting at is this culture is so prevalent in the church, in the modern church today, and especially in America, that many people, many church communities, they've lost the art of dying to themselves when it comes to church. 
They've lost the art of laying down their personal preferences and desires out of love for their brothers and sisters. We've made the church all about us. We think of the church as this place to get goods and services, and we choose the church that has the best, most contextualized, most suitable, most personalized goods and services for us. We choose churches the way we choose what shows we want to watch on Netflix. And as we've done that, we've segregated ourselves into these theological tribes and political tribes because it's not just about these personal preferences. It's about having a very narrow idea of what being a Christian means and separating ourselves and distinguishing ourselves from people who disagree. We have this my way or the highway mentality, and I think that is at the heart of the Jerusalem Council. Because you see, the reason why there was this disagreement in the first place was because the Jews and Gentiles, they were associating with one another. They were gathering together because it could have been, they very well could have said, you know what, you worship your way, I worship my way, we just stay separate. But the reason why there was this big issue is because they longed to be with one another. They longed to worship together. And that's what James was saying. These Jews, you know, they're worshiping in synagogues everywhere and you're going to be hanging out with them. Um, and so uh, we, we need to find a plan for us to worship together. And so that was their heart. But fortunately today, we sort of just have this mentality of like, I'll do things my way. And if you're with me, you're with me. If you're not, then functionally, I mean, I'm just not associating with you anymore. This misses out on a fundamental aspect of the gospel, which is that the gospel doesn't just bring people to God. The gospel also brings people to one another. Check out Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, which talks about Jews and Gentiles. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I love that. What it's talking about is God is in the business of breaking down walls of hostility. God is in the business of bringing people who historically, who, cult who, who culturally don't really have anything in common, and God reconciles them. And so those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we should not be rebuilding these walls of hostility. We should be let, letting these walls of hostility that God tore down to stay down. And we should be crossing these boundaries to fellowship and to reconcile with one another. You now I love this quote by D.A. Carson in his book, Love in Hard Places. He says, the church is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, not because, uh, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. What a beautiful picture. The two opposing parties in Acts 15 were natural enemies. One group wanted to be set apart from Greek culture, 
And the other group wanted to be more immersed, wanted to be more connected to Greek culture. One group wanted uh, for uh, these adherents to be circumcised, and the other saw circumcision primarily as a Jewish thing. They didn't want to be circumcised. But what did they do? They compromised. They laid down their personal preferences for the sake of spiritual unity. And what was the result? Well, let's keep reading. Uh, this is Acts 15. We're skipping down to 30 to 31. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. This is what James had pronounced. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. I love that because you see these Gentiles, they, were, they had sent off these messengers, sent off Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to say, okay, here's this big issue. This is confusing issues. Do we need to be circumcised? Do we need to follow the Jewish law? You go figure out what it is. Come report back. Let's see what happens. Okay, so the, 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 the apostles... I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they go, they come back, they bring the letter. Okay, you don't need to be circumcised, but you do need to follow these four things. And what do they do? They are glad for its encouraging message. Their response to learning, we need to follow these four things, is gladness. You see, when you have love for your brother or sister, then dying to yourself isn't a burden anymore. It's a joy. When you lay down your personal preferences, when you are freed up from entitlement, it's not a burden. It's not saying, oh man, I hate this. I have to do this. It's a joy. After all, isn't that the very picture of the gospel? Isn't that what Jesus did? Hebrews 12 too. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To Jesus... Dying on the cross was a joy. It was brutal. It was difficult. But there was joy in that suffering. There was something he could look forward to, which is the fact that he was doing it for love for you. It was through his death that we were united to him. And it was out of that hope that he endured the suffering. And we are the same way. To us, dying for the sake of one another is brutal it is difficult sometimes, but there is joy in that sacrifice. We do it out of the hope that we will be united to one another in the same way that we are united to Jesus. So just as Jesus endured the cross, he bore the shame, he laid down his preferences out of joy, we do the same. We bear the cross, we endure the shame out of joy because we know that there's something better than our personal preferences, which is unity with God, unity with one another, reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another. Let's pray together. And if the worship team can come up as well during this time, that'd be great. Father God, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity you've given us to look into Acts 15 and to discover this amazing story of compromise this amazing story of laying down our personal preferences and desires, even when it's difficult, even when we want so badly the freedoms we feel entitled to, out of love for our brothers and sisters. Um, it's just such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And we just pray that, this, that whenever we feel tempted to assert our own independence, to assert our selfishness, to assert uh, our entitlements, that you would just bring us... Uh, the, afresh the news of the gospel that Jesus laid it all down he set aside what was rightfully his to die 
on the cross for us to unite us with you. God, we pray for the state of the American church. It is so divided in so many ways, uh, ethnically, politically, theologically. There's so many people who are uh, making whole careers out of pointing fingers at one another and blaming one another and dividing up one another. We pray that we would be peacemakers. Uh, we pray that, uh, that we would embody the values of the kingdom led by the Prince of Peace to try to reconcile the different groups of people. That even though we, we, can, we can disagree on different things, we can disagree on how we interpret different passages and how we apply uh, certain uh, doctrines, we can still love one another, we can still sacrifice for one another, we can still be united, we can still fellowship with one another. Uh, because even though we are very different from one another, um, you, and I, you and we uh, at one point in time were even more different, but still you bridged that gap to reach us. So let us uh, instill this mentality of bridge building, of bridging divides, uh, of bringing people into reconciliation with one another so that the gospel will be declared. And as you prayed in John 17, the world would believe in the Son because we are one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.